At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. So I want to start today by telling you a story about Pastor C. Taud from Laos. In 2015, he and his family left their animistic beliefs behind in Laos and put their faith in Jesus. This is, this is Pastor uh, C. Taud. Because of this change, he and other Christians from his church, the Lao Evangelical Church, uh, were denied access to drinking water and other basic rights. Christians around him claimed that authorities tried to force him to sign an affidavit uh, claiming that he would renounce his faith in Jesus, and they claimed that this was maybe even interfering with local worship of idols and spirits. In 2018, local police handcuffed him and detained him in the village school for three days for hosting a church service in his home. Now, despite COVID-19 lockdowns, ministry leaders in this same province said that they baptized thousands of people and planted more than 60 churches. Like, this place is exploding. Now, local church leaders said, although that was happening, that they were being washed and were living in fear for their lives. According to church leaders in recent months, relatives and neighbors had followed Pastor C. Taud and threatened him with harm if he continued to share his Christian faith. In October of last year, Pastor C. Taud failed to arrive at a meeting of Christians and was reported missing. After three days of searching for him, his body was found in a ditch off the mountainous jungle near the village, disfigured with signs of torture. He left behind his wife and, how many was it? Eight children he had. He, they, they, the people who found his body found a Bible near his body. He had it right by him. Persecution for Christians around the world is a reality that we live in and we must face. It says in one in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide and that more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination. This may not be something that we live with, right? We are very, very blessed in the country that we live in. Can you imagine just saying the words, I love Jesus, and having a death threat on your head, that's a reality that does not happen here. Now, however, we do face a reality that it can cause a, 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 maybe a stigma in our lives. So it's not to say that we're exempt from this, but just imagine what that would be like. What kind of life change, running errands over to Meyer. And, and running your kids to soccer practice, what kind of different life would you lead knowing that persecution is a reality or would be a reality? So what, what might you hope for if that was a reality that we lived in? What might give you a breath of fresh air? What vision might motivate you to pursue faithfulness in life under the pressure and persecution that you face? These questions aren't only limited to to Pastor C. Taud, and like I said, they apply to us. 
So what would motivate us toward faithfulness in life and mission? So we're in the middle of a series through the book of Revelation called All Things New, where we're going through the last four chapters of Revelation. So we're finishing out the whole Bible, and it's just the last four chapters of the entire Bible. The Apostle John shares a revelation he received while a prisoner on the island of Patmos, uh, giving it to seven churches. And these churches were, in the same way, facing increasing pressure from the surrounding Roman culture. They were being killed for their faith. They were experiencing rejection for their faith. And yet, John writes to encourage them to overcome by providing them a vision of what is and what will ultimately come when God makes all things new. What we've already covered so far involved John encouraging his audience to be faithful. He reminds them that Jesus will return to defeat his enemies in chapter 19 of Revelation. That's what Pastor Jeff covered last week. His enemies are dead. Like, praise God for that. But beyond merely the defeat of his enemies, John now begins to envision for his audience what Jesus' return will be for the entire world. Here he seeks to encourage his audience by showing them that Christ will reign in a millennium, millennial kingdom. Not the millennial fa- falcon, if you're a Star Wars fan. Anybody, anybody out there? Like three people, thanks. I feel so welcome. <laughs> millennial kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom of Christ. Why would this be encouraging to John's audience? And how can that encourage us now? To answer that, we need to walk through the text together. But before we do that, I need to address one thing, and that's this map right here. I'm joking. Okay, last week, Pastor Jeff said that if anybody shares a timeline from the stage of Revelation, that you should text him. Don't call him. Take the map down. I'm joking. We're not going through very detailed things from Revelation. We're not going through timelines. Instead, what we're going to get at is the heart of this text. That's what matters, right? Anybody's like blood pressure just went up? I know mine did. So the term millennium means a thousand years, a phrase repeated five times these six verses. So many books have been written about this subject. This is one of the most debated chapters in all of Scripture. And there are entire theological systems built on how they these next six verses are supposed to be interpreted. Maybe you're familiar with terms like premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. And maybe those don't even sound familiar. Like, what are you, are you speaking an alien language? And that's totally okay, too. In fact, you might even be at a bit of an advantage because this text, you're, you're coming at it with a clean slate. However, if you are familiar with those terms and these systems, let me invite you just for a moment, to set them aside and simply look at the text this morning and let it encourage your heart first. Often when it comes to the distinctions um, surrounding these theological systems, there's a lot of focus on the when, the, the where, and the how of this text. Like, has it happened already? You start drawing up your map, similar to that, that uh, timeline that I just showed you, And people have debated this for centuries, and the church has divided on this issue. I'm not saying that the the where, the when, the how are not important questions, but often that's where we begin the discussion. 
We rush to put all the pieces in place. However, because of this, we often miss the important questions of what and why. We engage the text through a system instead of allowing the text first to speak to our hearts. But when we stop to look at the text with the question of what and why, we can find encouragement to remain faithful amidst persecution right here, right now. A good question we should ask as we approach this text is what marks these thousand years that John describes? And so through this, John focuses on two what's. And this will help us to understand the bigger why. Are you guys on board? Awesome. Five of you. Are you guys on board? Sweet. Let's go. So the overview of this chapter, all of chapter 20, starts with Satan being bound, moves into the millennial reign, moves to Satan released in the final battle ensuing, and then ends with the great white throne judgment. All in one chapter. So all those things, if you're familiar with this chapter, a lot is packed into it. And so the title of this is Welcome to the New Millennium. So let's read the text together. And like I said, let's slow down, let's let the text speak to our hearts. Starts in 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The end. Like, that's, that's a lot. And this is, this is apocalyptic language. This is prophetic language. So it seems bizarre to some of us. But the first what that marks this millennium that John describes is that Satan will be bound. The adversaries of God described through Revelation have already been the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. Now in this text, it describes Satan as this dragon. It names the dragon as Satan, who is the arch enemy of God. This was an angel who was fallen and was directly opposed to God who said, I can do this by myself. I am God now. This, uh, one commentator put it this way, that this cursed arch fiend has caused more pain and sorrow than words can tell. If that doesn't describe Satan, I don't know what does. He has caused so much pain, so much sorrow. He opposed Israel in 1 Chronicles 21. 
The first chapter of Job is about him torturing this man. And then he accused the high priest in Zechariah 3. But opposed to that, it describes Jesus' power and how he obliterates Satan. It describes that the angel comes down with a key and chain, puts him in a pit, shuts it, seals it over him, rendering him useless for a thousand years. And this is the first time that it mentions the thousand years. The purpose of this binding and the sealing is so that the devil, what it says is that, it might, that he might no longer deceive the nations. And a, a lot of debate um, has come of this, of what that really means. But John seems to give us a clue into its meaning in verse 8, where we see that the deception of the devil is the work of gathering and then leading the nations together in a final onslaught against God's people in the holy city. We're going to get more to this next week, but it seems that during this millennium that, this, um, that Satan is bound and he's cast into the pit to keep this final attack from actually happening. For when it does, it will prompt God's final and decisive judgment against Satan and all those who are on his side. So he's in the pit for a thousand years. And there's often discussion about whether, well, is it literally a thousand years or is this a figurative a thousand years? Um, there's no reason it can't be both. But again, focus on the why. Why is this being used? And don't get lost on the when and the how, which are good questions, but we're not going to cover today. In Jewish writing, a thousand years is a symbol of God's time. This is found in Psalm 90 and 2 Peter 3, and is a number utilized to communicate a very long period of time, marking the messianic reign. You see, the messianic reign, King Jesus is on his throne now, and this opposes every single king behind before him that came. So this is so different from any other king that has ever reigned. This allows us to see that John is strategically using this number to signify the reign of Jesus in an ideal time period in contrast to everybody else. This all to say, if you guys are lost, like me, this emphasizes that during this time, Satan is cast a decisive blow, and his power has been removed. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Satan's power is gone. This vision is meant to encourage his audience to overcome by reminding them that although they face the pressure of spiritual forces and darkness now, a day is coming when the enemy's power will be gone. How can that not encourage a group of people who were dying at the hands of the Romans, but now have this vision that it will end? That's so good. So imagine what John is saying here a bit like this. Suppose you were in a boxing match. Anybody uh, MMA fans or boxing fans? Anybody raise your hands? Somebody name me a very famous boxer. Tyson. So imagine you're in the ring with Tyson. You. Or you can imagine me. Who would you put money against? Not saying, thank you. Tyler would win against Tyson. Awesome. So I'm in the ring with Tyson. He's absolutely handing it to me. Like I've got a broken nose. I'm bleeding everywhere. Like I'm ready to throw in the towel. I go to tell my manager that I'm, I'm done. 
Like, this is, this is over. It, the fight just seems like it's too much, too impossible. But then suppose in that moment, my manager comes closer to me and says, hey, I've got something that you should know. They've determined that your opponent, Tyson of all people, has cheated this entire time. And for your sake, on the last round, they're going to tie his hands behind his back. <laughs> Sound realistic? Awesome. He's been cheating the whole time, so they're going to tie his hands behind his back and will be okay. And so you step back into the ring. I step back into the ring ready to endure, to persevere, to battle because you know his power is going to be gone. I'm like five rounds away, but I know that when that last round comes, I'm going to win. Maybe. I know some of you guys would like still put your money on Tyson. I know the match will be mine. And in the same way, we have hope knowing the match is ours and Satan will lose. Have you ever wondered what life would be like if there were no tempter? If there were no Satan prowling around, what kind of life would you be living right now? And so we get this picture of the angel whose hands must be large and strong, locking his vice-like grip on the ancient serpent, binding him with the chain, hurling him into the pit, shutting it with lock and key, placing the seal over it, no more satanic deception allowed. Imagine what your life would be like after that. The pressure from the enemy might be overwhelming for you, but my message today for you is don't give up. Don't give up. Why continue to fight when we have so much sin surrounding us? When we have human trafficking in this area? When we have sin reigning in our lives? When we have temptation every second of every day? When everything around us and everyone around us saying that we are not good enough? That we feel the weight of this world? We know that it will end. This sin will end. Satan will be bound and evil will not always win. So have hope and hold on for a little while. Keep your head up today because hope is on the horizon. Man, if we understand that, that will change our entire outlook on life. And so maybe you aren't experiencing the weight of persecution I encourage you, my encouragement to you right now is do one of two things. Is that if you aren't, use this moment for as much evangelism, as much discipleship as possible. You have the freedom to do it. Tell people about Jesus. Find somebody to disciple and train them in the ways of Jesus. And if you're not as well, ask yourself and do some self-evaluation if your life has enough evidence to deserve persecution? Is your life reflecting the way of Jesus? Do people know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you pray? Do some self-evaluation and see if your life reflects and actually outward showing that you are one of Jesus's sons and daughters. The binding of Satan is not the only what of Jesus's millennial reign. He also wants us to see that the saints reign with the victorious king in this millennial reign. The saints reign with the victorious king. 
You see, John again indicates a new vision with the phrase, then I saw. This is, how many visions does he give? This is the fifth of seven visions in chapter 19 and 20. And these saints who were killed are now on thrones, which is a symbol of reigning. They now have authority to judge. This is mentioned in Daniel 7. I encourage you to go back to Daniel 7 and read. Verse 4 then tells tells us of souls who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, specifically those who were beheaded, which alludes to Revelation 13, where the beast made war on the church and executed those who didn't worship him. These are martyrs, those who were killed for having faith in Jesus and standing up to the authority above them. This is what John says, the ultimate example of not bowing our knees to the beast. But it's not limited to martyrs. God calls all Christians to be faithful unto death and to hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Should we not? If you hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, are you prepared to experience persecution in your life? I think we all should ask that question. If so, Revelation shares in verse 13a that your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Like, does that make you smile? Like, your name is written in the book of life. You are now God's, and you will reign in his kingdom. John then concludes by noting three distinct blessings that these faithful overcomers will experience. Number one, that they receive resurrection. Okay, just stop. Okay. They receive resurrection. Like, that's awesome. These dead people are raised to life. And then what is called the second death, which is the final separation from God in the lake of fire and hell, will have no power over them. That no longer has any power over them. This will be explained more next week as we'll cover Um, the rest of chapter 20. The second blessing that they will receive is that they will be priests of God and the Messiah. And then the third is that they will rule with Christ on earth during this period of time. Through this, it's the start of what initially started in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis 1. Our designed purpose of being made in God's image is so that we would be reconciled to God and serve with him as priests. All through scripture, God has told Adam, Israel, even in Revelation 1-6, that Jesus has made a kingdom, priest to our God and Father. This now begins. That's so encouraging. And now that Satan is bound and his power is removed... We're no longer deceived, and it begins. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who experience this. Blessed and holy are you. If you're a believer in Jesus, this section is describing your future. Satan is gone from the scene. Christ is reigning on earth and you will be raised to sin no more. Can I get an amen to that? You will be raised. 
No more satanic temptation and deception. And this is what one commentator says. In the presence of Christ, you will do justice and serve as a priest to God. This is what you were made to do. You were created to enjoy God as king in God's land in free obedience to God's law. Uncontained, undefiled, unsullied, no devil prowling around like a roaring lion. Freedom, joy, righteousness. The other side is that if you don't believe in Jesus, you will not receive the blessing talked about in this passage. You will not reign with him. You will not partake in the first resurrection. You will miss seeing the glory of Christ the King. That is the reward. Oftentimes in like kids' Sunday school classes, maybe not here, it's like, I want to go to heaven. I want to accept Jesus because then I'm going to go to heaven. That's not the reward. Our reward is a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we're in this millennium, we're going to experience and be face-to-face with that person for the first time in our lives. Isn't that encouraging? And so, know that if you repent of your sins today and ask that Jesus would save you today, All of these blessings will be yours and more. This is accessible. What do you have to do? Go on your knees, admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and say, Jesus, come into my life. It's so simple, a child could do it. It requires giving up control. I love control in my life, don't you? You give up that control and understand that you turn to Christ and he will give you this reward. On top of that, we haven't even mentioned the, millennium, uh, the, the millennial kingdom, is that uh, before we, we get to that, I want to tell you about a place named Northland Camp. If I haven't already told you about this place, this is a place, this is a picture of what it looked like. This is the lake up there. This is a camp where I went to uh, a little bit after college, and I was looking for a job, a gig to do during the summer, and I found a place looking for camp counselors. This place is beautiful. This place is northern Wisconsin, right by the border of the UP, right near Iron Mountain area. And if you love nature as much as I do, like this is heaven. It's beautiful. There's water, there's nature, there's peace and quiet. At this camp, there was canoeing and water slides, healthy and unhealthy competition. It was crazy there. It was awesome. But most importantly is that there was Jesus-centered community. Like this community, I've got a picture right here of just friends that I made. There's baby Tyler on the left. And this is a place where I met my wife, right on the right-hand side there. And so through this experience, we met people. We were able to sharpen one another like the Bible talks about. And this place was just a beautiful picture of what I saw Uh, what I maybe even envision the millennial reign and kingdom of God being, but most importantly, people who came into the camp, go back to the last picture, um, people came into this camp with broken lives, with hurts. Kids came into this camp with broken lives, and they left encouraged with joy. People were saved, and they understood who Jesus was. 
and they were reconciled to God. Like, this was a place in my own memory that I can picture this. Maybe you have a similar memory of what you've experienced, um, maybe something similar to this. And so I just want to encourage you. This, there's so many different ways that we can imagine this kingdom. We don't have a direct description of what it's like. But one commentator put it this way, is that the glory of God will cover the dry lands of this earth like the waters cover the sea when Christ reigns with his resurrected followers in the millennium. Like, it's going to be beautiful. How can this picture of a millennial reign not encourage you, especially if you're a Christian with a death threat on your head, right? In the same way that these churches were living in Roman rule. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, you're very, maybe you're familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, and in his last book called The Last Battle, he describes and uses this analogy for heaven to help us see life beyond what's in front of us. Because it's so easy for us to get caught up in, right now I'm in church, Sunday morning, and then I'm doing this, X, Y, Z. Think about even farther. And this is what he says um, right at the end of time. He says, the dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. This is Aslan. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can truly say that they have lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our future. I mean, that's not Bible, but it's a great picture of what this reign will be. There will be a new and perfect power that will reign over the earth, and we will reign with him. No more satanic rule. It's now a perfect and powerful rule. When we look towards the future, our hearts are filled with hope, and we endure the present in anticipation of what is to come. Like I said, maybe you aren't experiencing persecution like uh, Pastor Seataud, like I said in the beginning. But you are experiencing physical pain, emotional pain, the death of a loved one, the weight of your own sin, the weight of other sins around you. Hold on for a little while. The time will come that this will end. Do you believe that, church? It will end. Christ will reign and like we've talked about, the what and the why, Satan will be bound and saints will reign with our victorious King Jesus. So, so beautiful. And so there is still the question of when will this happen? So I hope you guys have another two hours because we're going to talk a little. No, I'm joking. Like I said, you can get tripped up on when will this happen? Has it already happened? This is not a gospel issue. Christians divide themselves. We divide ourselves when we make these distinctions. And they're important arguments. They're worthwhile. I go through them. But this is not required 
to have a faithful and uh, devoted relationship with Jesus. Therefore, our hope is not to sidestep this discussion, but rather to point us all towards the greater why, which is faithfulness in the face of pressure and persecution, however it may come. So remain faithful because our king will reign. And may we all continue with faithful perseverance in following our risen Lord. Let's pray. Man, Jesus, we, um, I'm speechless right now thinking about what life will be with you. As I think about my own life, I lose sight of the future that you've promised us in this millennial reign and the life to come. Father, as I'm ending this out, Lord, I thank you for the preparation that went into this. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to see in this moment what is to come. Help us not to get lost in the details of life. And as we may be experiencing pain in this moment, as we may be experiencing the weight of sin and other sins, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. I pray that we would leave this place knowing that this is not our home. Help us to look forward to the life that you've promised us, that those in Christ will reign with you. I can't even imagine what that will be like, but Lord, I pray that it would encourage every single one of us in our daily life, that as we may be struggling with things, that those things would seem insignificant, understanding that our enemy will be truly bound and that we will have free access to you without any hindrance. Father, I pray that if persecution does come, that you would encourage us, give us hope, and help us to see that the last round of this fight will come and that you've promised us a victory. We thank you so much for the resurrection that is promised. And Lord, may you be glorified. I pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified and would be shouted from the rooftops from this place and in this city and that this place would be marked as a place that loves you, King Jesus. We call you King Jesus because that is who you are and we know that you will reign. We love you, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.